You're listening to a Sovereign Hope Church podcast with pastor and teaching elder Adam Vinson. All right, as you're being seated, I want to invite you to turn in your Bibles to Revelation chapter 20. Revelation chapter 20, we do have our slide notes available. You can access those through the link in the bulletin. We talked big overview of Revelation chapter 20 last week. I want to recap that as quickly as possible because I don't want to detract from our time together today in the actual text in Revelation 20 because I do want to move us forward in our study of the book of Revelation. So last week we said, understanding this difficult chapter, it's really good, it's really healthy, it's really important for us to study and seek to know what we believe about this because it's going to force us to seek clarity about other passages of Scripture. So as we seek to understand Revelation 20, it's going to force us to try to understand other passages of Scripture, and that's always a healthy practice for us to know God's Word, uh, to know God's Word better, right? It's going to remind us that God keeps all of His promises because that's the, that's the point of emphasis for premillennialism, that God keeps His promises to Israel. So as we seek to understand Revelation 20, it's going to remind us God keeps His promises, and how do I reconcile the fulfillment of some of the promises that God has made? It's going to encourage us that the gospel will be effective prior to Christ coming back, right? The postmillennialists believe that the whole earth is going to become Christianized. While I don't believe that, studying this chapter reminds me and encourages me to keep in perspective that the gospel is effective. That while I don't believe the entire world is going to become Christianized, I do believe there will be Christians all over the world before Jesus comes back right? And it leads us to hope in the second coming of Jesus more and more because the amillennial view, its point of emphasis is to remind us that our hope is in Jesus's return. It's not in a golden age of everybody becoming a Christian before Jesus comes back. The great hope of the New Testament for the believer is Jesus is coming back. So as we study Revelation 20, whatever camp we fall into, it's going to encourage us to remember that God keeps his promises, that the gospel is effective, and that the hope of the believer is the second coming of Jesus. All right? We talked premillennialism last week. We said that um, their big thing is that God keeps his promises to Israel, and so their basis of belief about Jesus ruling and reigning here on this earth is tied to their belief in God keeping promises to Israel. We said weaknesses in that view, it's hard to really account for who actually goes into the millennial reign, right? Because if Jesus comes back, believers are supposed to get new bodies and unbelievers are supposed to be judged. So who's left to go into the millennial reign? That's the big question mark for premillennialism. It also teaches that sin, death, and wrath will continue after Jesus comes back. Whereas it seems like there's some passages that really say when Jesus comes back, death is swallowed up in victory. But to believe premillennialism, you have to believe that death will continue after Jesus comes because people will live for a thousand years and die within that thousand years. You have to believe that sin will continue because at the end of the thousand year reign, if sin's not happening prior to that, sin certainly happens at the very end where there's this big rebellion against Jesus, right? And then God pours out wrath there. Postmillennialism, everybody becomes a Christian. Um, weaknesses, it seems to make that the big hope versus Jesus coming back, this hoping in a day where everybody's a Christian. It's also really hard to reconcile it with other passages that talk about the persecution and the temptation and the trials that a Christian will face leading up to Jesus' return. Amillennialism, everything's about the second coming of Jesus because when Jesus comes back, everything ends and we go into eternity. The weaknesses around this view, does it give an adequate response to the Old Testament promises? Does it give an adequate response to the binding of Satan that we find here in Revelation chapter 20? The application I gave you last week, study this on your own and know what you believe and why you believe it. I gave you some resources this week to look through, to start reading on your own, to listening to some things on your own. I know some of you have already done that. I would encourage all of you to spend some time knowing what you believe about this passage I wanted to, to, to kind of remind you why I, why I fall into the camp that I do. I'm, I'm, I'm in the amillennial camp. The big reason that I can't, I can't uh, believe the premillennial view, um, just to, I, you know, I've told you before, why do I not believe in a rapture? Um, it has a lot to do with the, the, the church and Israel coming together, right? The reason that I'm not premillennial 
in my views about the end times is because I have real issues with death and sin continuing after Jesus comes back. I just can't reconcile that with passages that talk about Jesus coming back and resurrection happening and us being ushered what I believe is into eternity where there is no death and sin. To, to have a scenario where Jesus comes back and death is not defeated and sin is not extinguished is just really hard for me to reconcile, especially in light of chapters like 1 Corinthians 15. It's also very hard for me to understand who enters that millennial reign when Jesus comes back because scripture is really clear. We as believers wait for Jesus to come back so we get glorified bodies. We read at the end of Revelation chapter 19, everybody gets eaten by birds that's not a believer, right? Small and great, king and poor. Like everybody that's not a believer is, is really killed at the end of Revelation 19. And so it's hard to understand who's left for the thousand year reign. Jeremy and, I, Jeremy and I were talking this week, like John Piper suggested that maybe it's babies that, that haven't reached an age of accountability to become a Christian that are left. Can you imagine a scenario where a bunch of babies are left here on this earth and they're expected to like grow up and reign with Jesus for a thousand years? Like that's hard to even like picture, right? And so it's, it's, a, really, it's a really good perspective until you really start to dissect it and try to figure out how does this, how does this work, right? And so who's left because... Satan is supposed to be bound and the nations can't be deceived anymore. But the question that I would ask is, what nations are we talking about? Because the nations are defeated at the end of Revelation chapter 19. All right. Today we're talking about Revelation 20. And here's what I want to do as we walk through this verse by verse. I want want everything that you write down, basically all the notes, I want the bulk of what I say today to be true no matter what camp you fall into. Right, so I don't want today to be an amillennial sermon. I don't want it to be a sermon against postmillennialism or a sermon against premillennialism. I want it to be a sermon where pretty much everything that I say is true for you, no matter which perspective you take. Because here's the thing about amillennialism. Amillennialism teaches all of these things have happened, are happening, are true, and all the other views simply say, yes, but it has to happen more. Right, so there's not really anything that amillennialism says that a postmillennialist or a premillennialist would say, no, that's not true. Right? Like I can tell you that I don't think it's true that death and sin continue after Jesus comes back. You can't be a premillennialist and say that Satan is not bound today in some capacity because Jesus says he is. Right? You can say he's going to be bound more in the future, but you can't say that he's not bound today right? He is bound today. Now, you may believe that he's going to be bound more in the future, but Jesus is very clear that he's bound and he's limited today in the things that he can do. You can't say that, that Christians don't experience a resurrection now through salvation, because scripture is very clear that salvation is a type of resurrection. Now, you can say, well, there's some future resurrections that still have to happen, but you can't say that resurrection isn't happening right now, Scripture is very clear that when we die and we join Jesus in heaven, it's a type of resurrection. Now, you may not believe it's the first resurrection, but you have to believe that it is a resurrection in general because Scripture paints it that way. So again, everything that I say today should be true for you no matter what camp you fall into. You don't have to be an amillennialist to come to our church. You don't have to be an amillennialist to worship with us, to be a member here, to join in what we're doing. And I want to show you that today, that you don't have to be an amillennialist to enjoy us teaching through Revelation chapter 20. Because I think everything that I say, all the notes today that you're going to write down are going to be true, whether you're a premillennialist, amillennialist, postmillennialist, or you're just not even sure what you are. You're going to see very clearly in Scripture, Scripture has some clear things to say that are true from Revelation chapter 20. Okay? Summary sentence. One of the longer ones that we've ever done before. Okay? And this summary sentence is true again, whether you're an amillennialist or not. The Bible teaches that Satan's influence has been greatly reduced at the first coming of Jesus. That's true. The Bible says that. We're going to see that today. Again, you may think that more is to come, but you can't say that Satan is not bound in some capacity today because Scripture says that he is very clearly. The Bible teaches that... um, Satan's influence has been greatly reduced at the first coming of Jesus, allowing for a great expansion of the gospel. Maybe the whole world doesn't become Christian, but it allows for a great expansion of the gospel. And while death is still present for the Christian now, 
and there is still great deception to come. We see that at the, ba- uh, at the middle of Revelation 20. People die, martyrs die. They come to life, they reign with Jesus. There's a great deception to come. We can enjoy a spiritual resurrection through salvation and death right now while hoping for an even greater resurrection in the future. So I'm gonna show you today that scripture teaches a spiritual resurrection for believers now. Salvation is a spiritual resurrection. Dying as a Christian before Jesus comes back is a type of resurrection. And there is a future resurrection for sure where we get new bodies. For our kids, Satan cannot stop the church and death cannot defeat Christians. Bible teaches Satan's influence has been greatly reduced, which allows for a great expansion of the gospel. And even though Christians still die today, and even though we know there's a great deception coming, we can enjoy a spiritual resurrection now by being saved. And even if we die, we experience a type of resurrection when we come to life with Jesus in heaven. All the while, we are hoping for a greater resurrection in the future. All right, by way of introductory notes, um, one, of the, one of the key points of amillennialism is that the kingdom of God and the kingdom of Satan continue to coexist until Jesus comes back, right? Postmillennialism would say kingdom of Satan decreases, kingdom of Jesus increases to the point where it basically obliterates the kingdom of Satan. But Jesus talks in Matthew chapter 13, a parable that is a picture, I think, of what we see today. Verse 24 He put another parable before them, saying, The kingdom of heaven may be compared to a man who sowed good seed in his field. But while his men were sleeping, his enemy came and sowed weeds among the wheat and went away. So when the plants came up and bore grain, then the weeds appeared also. And the servant of the master of the house came and said to him, Master, did you not sow good seed in your field? How then does it have weeds? He said to them, An enemy has done this. So the servant said to him, Then do uh, do you want us to go out and gather them? But he said, No, lest in gathering the weeds you root up the wheat along with them. Let both grow together until the harvest, and at harvest time I will tell the reapers, gather the weeds first and bind them in bundles to be burned, but gather the wheat into my barn. He explains this in verse 36. Then he left the crowds and went to the house, and his disciples came to him, saying, Explain to us the parable of the weeds of the field. He answered, The one who sows the good seed is the son of man. The field is the world, and the good seed is the sons of the kingdom. The weeds are the sons of the evil one, and the enemy who sowed them is the devil. The harvest is the end of the age, and the reapers are angels. Just as the weeds are gathered and burned with fire, so it will be at the end of the age. The Son of Man will send his angels, and they will gather out of his kingdom all causes of sin and all lawbreakers, throw them into the fiery furnace. In that place there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Then the righteous will shine like the sun in the kingdom of their father. He who has ears, let him hear. The time period that we're looking at in Revelation 20 describes two major things that are happening. Again, no matter what camp you fall into, you would agree that there is a binding of Satan and a reigning with Christ that happens uh, at the very same time. And this thousand-year period is most likely symbolic like the rest of the book because there's no other mention in Scripture of a special thousand-year period that we should be looking towards. Um, Psalm 90, chapter 4 is a less familiar passage. Most of us are familiar with 2 Peter 3, 8, which talks about um, our concept of time and God's concept of time being different, right? Like a thousand years is as one day. One day is like a thousand years to God. Psalm 94 kind of echoes the same mindset. It says, for a thousand years in your sight are but as yesterday when it is past or as a watch in the night. The term, the the number thousand is used throughout scripture, whether it's God owning a cattle on a thousand hills or whether a a day being like a thousand years. The concept of a thousand is always used as a large number, but not always as a specific number, right? Like we don't think that God only owns the cattle on 1,000 hills specifically. It's meant to communicate to us that he owns all the cattle on all the hills, right? So I do believe that the thousand years is a symbolic time period. I would also say that if I'm wrong about all this and there is a specific thousand-year reign where Jesus is on this earth, a lot of commentators believe that it's not going to fully be just so Israel can get all its promises fulfilled, that it's going to show the depravity of man even more and make God even more holy and just in his punishment because what we're going to have is 
Satan completely removed from the earth, and people still rejecting a bodily, physical Jesus. If I'm wrong about this, I think the purpose of it would be not so much so Israel gets a bunch of promises fulfilled, but so ultimately God is shown to be more holy and more just when people still reject him when the, when the tempter is completely removed. Now again, I don't believe Satan is going to be completely removed from the earth, but if I'm wrong, I think the way that, that God will work this is to show his justice and punishment being the fact that even if the tempter is completely removed, man is so depraved and so in need of Jesus, he will still turn to sin even if his environment is the best environment possible, that we're that sinful, right? Like you can't put us in an environment where Jesus is ruling and reigning and us not choose sin. We're, we're too broken. We have to be fixed by the gospel. We have to be fixed by the cross. I think everywhere we see in scripture uh, or everywhere we've seen in Revelation about the great battle scenes, they all parallel each other. And this is the last introductory note I'll give you. We see in Revelation chapter 20, this passage at the end of uh, the millennial reign where it talks about Satan gathering um, the nations. They marched up over the broad plain of the earth, surrounded the camp of the saints. Fire came down from heaven and consumes them. The devil who had deceived them was thrown into the lake of fire. This great battle scene that takes place. I think it's very similar, and it's the exact same battle that takes place in Revelation 19, 19. I saw the beasts and the kings of the earth with their armies gathered to make war against him who was sitting on the horse and against his army. We see Jesus devastate the, the armies there. And we also see it in Revelation chapter 16, verse 13. I think the very same battle. And I saw coming out of the mouth of the dragon and out of the mouth of the beast and out of the mouth of the false prophet three unclean spirits like frogs. They are demonic spirits performing signs who go abroad to the kings of the whole world to assemble them for battle on the great day of God the Almighty. And again, Jesus wins this battle because the consistency here is you've got deception, you've got nations and kings gathering, and you have Jesus winning. I think it's again that recapitalization of all these battles being the same. Romans chapter 16, verse 20. The God of peace will soon crush Satan under your feet. The grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with you. There seems to be an imminence about Satan's defeat. Now, we know that this was written in 2,000 years have passed, really, since it was written, and Satan has still not been defeated. But I do think there is to be an expectation of the believer that Satan's demise is very soon. If we believe that Satan is only defeated after a thousand years, we're waiting for Jesus to come back, and we know at best we're looking at another thousand years before Satan is defeated. Whereas Paul seems to say, this is an expectation you can have today, that if Jesus comes back today, Satan will be crushed under his feet. Okay, let's look at Romans, let's look at Revelation chapter 20, and let's say a lot of things that we can all agree about, no matter what camp we fall into. Okay, number one, rejoice over satanic limits. We can rejoice today over Satan's limits with his power. For our kids, rejoice because God is more powerful than Satan. He is. Revelation 20 says, Then I saw an angel coming down from heaven, holding in his hand the key to the bottomless pit and a great chain. And he seized the dragon, that ancient serpent, who is the devil and Satan, and bound him for a thousand years and threw him into the pit and shut it and sealed it over him so that he might not deceive the nations any longer until the thousand years were ended. After that, he must be released for a little while. We can rejoice over satanic limits. Number one, Satan's deceptive influence has been reduced. Again, no matter what camp you fall into, you have to believe that Satan has been uh, limited in his capabilities right now. Now, again, you can believe that that's going to be further increased in the future. And if, and I know we've got people that hold to the premillennial view in here. And the only thing that I'm asking for in the midst of this study is that you stop saying that you don't believe Satan is bound. Stop saying that because that's contrary to scripture. Change it and start saying, I believe Satan will be bound more in the future than what he is currently. So let's eliminate the language that says Satan is not bound right now, because he is. You may believe that he's going to be bound more in the future, but he is certainly limited in what he can do 
right now. Let's see what Scripture has to say about it. First, let's just all admit that Satan is always limited to God's plans for him, right? Like this isn't a special time in the future where Satan can no longer do what he wants to do. He always can only do what God allows him to do before and after the binding. He's never free to do whatever he wants to do. I think it's also important to know that the binding of Satan takes place with a lot of ease right here, right? Like this angel just shows up and seizes the great dragon, the ancient serpent, and binds him for a thousand years. There's nothing here about a struggle. Right? There's not a great battle that takes place to get Satan into this pit. He just goes, right? He's just bound up and goes. He's arrested by the angel and really has no say-so in the matter. The specific result, and again, this is what the amillennial view would say, the specific result of the binding is tied to the fact that he cannot deceive the nations any longer. He cannot deceive the nations any longer. This is similar to what I would say in regards to how a Christian is sealed. Think about it. In, in Revelation 7, 3, and in Revelation 9, 4, both those passages talk about God sealing his people. Now, what do we mean about God sealing his people? Are they completely protected from anything and everything? No. Do Christians still get martyred and die for their faith even after they're being sealed? Yes. Right? Their sealing is for a specific purpose. What's the specific purpose? They don't abandon the faith, right? They cannot be harmed spiritually. Can they be harmed physically? Absolutely. We see it all through Revelation, right? So even when we talk about a Christian's sealing, we're talking about a very specific purpose for what that sealing includes. They cannot abandon the faith. They don't, they don't um, get the mark of the beast, right? Like they, don't, they don't get deceived by the Antichrist, do they die? Yep. Do, do, they, do, they, do they get martyred? Absolutely. Do they get persecuted? Completely. Do they abandon the faith? No. They're sealed. Okay. Same way, Satan is bound and sealed in such a way where he cannot deceive the nations. And you can believe this no matter what camp you fall into because Scripture teaches it, right? We talked about this a little bit last week. We'll highlight a few of these passages. Matthew chapter 12. Verse 23, everybody's amazed at God's ability or Jesus' ability um, to free people from demon possession. All the people were amazed and said, can this be the son of David? But when the Pharisees heard it, they said, it's only by Beelzebul, the prince of demons, that this man casts out demons. Knowing their thoughts, he said to them, every kingdom divided against itself is laid waste. No city or house divided against itself will stand. If Satan casts out Satan, he is divided against himself. How then will his kingdom stand? If I cast out demons by Beelzebul, by whom do your sons cast them out? Therefore, they will be your judges. But if it is by the Spirit of God that I cast out demons, then the kingdom of God has come upon you. Or how can someone enter a strong man's house and plunder his goods unless he first binds the strong man? Then indeed he may plunder his house. Jesus is describing his work. He is describing the healing work, the salvific work that he is performing. And he describes it in such a way that he is like a thief who has bound the owner of a house and is taking all of his stuff while he has to watch. He says, if you want to go in and rob somebody, you go in and you take care of the owner first, get him out of the way so that he can't stop you from what it is you want to take. Jesus says, that's what I'm doing right now. I have bound Satan in such a way that I'm taking stuff back for myself. I am taking people and claiming them for my kingdom. That's the picture that he gives. He gives the same picture in Mark 3 and in Luke chapter 11. Okay, so it's, it's found in all the gospels. In John chapter 12, a passage we looked at last week. And again, my goal is not to, to prove amillennialism. My goal is to get you as premillennialist or postmillennialist to stop saying that Satan is not bound right now. Start saying that he will be bound more in the future because he is bound right now, according to Jesus. In John chapter 12, verse 31, now is the judgment of this world. Now will the ruler of this world be cast out. Same wordage used in Revelation for being bound. And I, when I am lifted up from the earth, will draw all people to myself. Again, Jesus says the binding purpose of Satan, the casting out purpose of Satan is what? So that I can be lifted up and people will come to me for salvation. The same purpose seen in Revelation chapter 20, that Satan is bound so that he cannot deceive the nations any longer. Colossians chapter 2 verse 13. 
And you who were dead in your trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh, God made alive together with him, having forgiven us all our trespasses. By canceling the record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands, this he set aside, nailing it to the cross. He disarmed the rulers and authorities, that's Satan and his forces, and put them to open shame by triumphing over them in him. Jesus' work produces a type of binding or disarming of Satan right now. Now again, you can believe that more is to come in the future, but don't miss the point of Scripture where Jesus has communicated that Satan is under a, a form of defeat right now, and nations are coming to salvation. People are being drawn to him because of that work of Jesus. We can go on to see that his arrival marked new developments in the redemptive plan that show this to be true. Not only is Jesus predicting that these things will happen, it continues to show it to be true. Matthew chapter 4, verse 14 through 17. And leaving Nazareth, he went and lived in Capernaum by the sea in the territory of Zebulun and Naphtali, so that what was spoken by the prophet Isaiah might be fulfilled. The land of Zebulun and the land of Naphtali, the way of the sea beyond the Jordan, Galilee of the Gentiles, the people dwelling in darkness have seen a great light. And for those dwelling in the region and shadow of death, on them a light has dawned. From that time, Jesus began to preach, saying, Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Jesus is fulfilling prophecy about Gentiles in this area coming to salvation. And it's a result of the work of his coming where Satan can no longer deceive people. He can't, he, can't, he can't hold the nations in his grasp. He's having to release them back to Jesus. Now, again, you can believe that's going to happen even greater in the future, but you have to believe that it's happening now as well because Scripture shows it to be true. Uh, Luke chapter 2, verse 29 through 32. This is the passage where Simeon uh, greets and meets Jesus for the very first time as a baby. And he's excited because he says, Lord, now you are letting your servant depart in peace according to your word. For my eyes have seen your salvation that you have prepared in the presence of all peoples, a light for revelation to the Gentiles and for glory for your people, Israel. Acts chapter 26. What we're showing here is that Jesus' arrival moves the redemptive plan further ahead. Right? Old Testament, it's strongly about Israel, and Gentiles are encouraged to come and be a part of it. New Testament, there's a shift where the the people of God go forth and communicate the gospel and make disciples in all nations. Jesus' coming kind of inaugurates that. In, In Acts chapter 26, verse 16, But rise and stand upon your feet, for I have appeared to you for this purpose, talking to Paul, to appoint you as a servant and witness to the things in which you have seen, me and to those in which I will appear to you, delivering you from your people and from the Gentiles to who I am sending you to open their eyes so they may turn from darkness to light and from the power of Satan to God, that they may receive forgiveness of sins and a place among those who are sanctified by faith in me. Man, this is, this is Jesus communicating that there's a change now. The Gentiles are gonna be saved in masses right? Like the gospel is going forth. They were previously in darkness. They were previously under the power of Satan, and they are now being yielded to God because of the work, the great work of Jesus. We have to see in scripture. We do a disservice to the work of Jesus if we simply say Satan's not bound right now. He is bound. He may be bound more in the future, but he's certainly disarmed in such a way right now where the nations are coming to salvation. The great obstacle to the gospel advancement has been limited. Even if, even if a premillennialist says that Satan will be bound further in the future, it doesn't mean that everybody becomes a Christian during the millennial reign, right? Because Revelation 20 says at the end of this millennial reign, whenever that happens, a number that's as great as the sands of the seashore will gather to rebel against Jesus. Right? So even if Satan is bound further in the future, sin is still rampant and rebellion is still rampant. So even to look around and say, I just can't believe Satan is bound right now because things are so bad right now. Let me tell you something. It's going to be bad in the millennial reign as well. Maybe it's, maybe it's disguised a little bit more. But at the end of the millennial reign, people that number the sands of the seashore are going to rebel against Jesus and want to mount an attack against him. So even if Satan is stuffed in a pit somewhere and can't breathe 
anything and can't do anything around anybody, people still reject Jesus, right? People still will reject Jesus in mass number, okay? So what we're saying is, is that Satan is certainly disarmed and limited in such a way today that people are coming to salvation in ways that they previously had not before Jesus came. That's a point we can all agree on no matter what camp we fall into. When Jesus showed up, redemption changed and people from nations and tribes and tongues that previously had not accepted Jesus start coming to Jesus because Jesus did something to Satan to make that possible, okay? He still blinds people, 2 Corinthians 4.4. 4. He still is very active, 1 Peter 5.8, like a roaring lion. He still persecutes the church. He still disrupts church unity, 2 Corinthians 2.11. He still slings fiery darts like Ephesians 6 talks about. He still thwarts the human plans that we make. 1 Thessalonians 2, when we went through this book, we talked about how Paul wanted to do things, wanted to do gospel things, discipleship things, and he says what? Satan has hindered me from doing it. Satan still does all those things because Revelation 20 doesn't say that he stops doing those things. Doesn't say that he stops roaring like a lion. Doesn't say that he stops tempting people. Doesn't say that he stops thwarting our plans. It says he stops deceiving the nations. That's what he stops doing. Okay? A Christian is sealed in such a way that he does not abandon the faith. He can still be persecuted. He can still die a martyr's death. He can't abandon the faith. Satan can still roar like a lion and can still tempt, can still thwart plans, can't deceive the nations, can't stop the gospel going forth. Okay? Number two, he's unable to mount a global attack against the church. Again, no matter what camp you fall into, you have to believe that that's true. Picture it like an animal that's on a leash. There's some things that that animal can do. And if it's the right type of animal, it can be a threat, right? You put an angry, uh, malicious dog or lion on a leash, you're still going to cautious your kids to say, don't go near that right? Like, I get that he's on a leash, but if you get anywhere near that leash, man, he poses a real threat. He's a real danger. We're going to stay way over here, right? Satan is like a, a dragon that's on a leash in that he can't do certain things, but he can still do some things, which makes him a threat, makes him a danger. Second Thessalonians chapter 2. And this is where, when you have a difficult chapter like Revelation 20, you have to go to other passages to see if what you believe about Revelation 20 matches with what other scriptures have to say. 2 Thessalonians 2, questions about the return of Jesus. Now concerning the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ and our being gathered together to him, we ask you, brothers, not to be quickly shaken in mind or alarmed, either by a spirit or a spoken word or a letter seeming to be from us to the effect that the day of the Lord has come. All right, so these people were confused. Has Jesus come back or not? Let no one deceive you in any way, for that day will not come unless the rebellion comes first. And the man of lawlessness is revealed, the son of destruction, who opposes and exalts himself against every so-called God or object of worship, so that he takes his seat in the temple of God, proclaiming himself to be God. Do you not remember that when I was with you, I still with you, I told you about these things? All right, so he says, Jesus hasn't come back yet because there hasn't been this great rebellion yet. Right? There's a great rebellion that happens in Revelation 20. Maybe there's multiple ones. But we're told that Jesus will not come back until at least one great rebellion happens. Verse 6, you know what is restraining him now so that he may be revealed in his time. For the mystery of lawlessness is already at work. Only he who now restrains it will do so until he is out of the way. What happens in Revelation 20 when Satan is unleashed? What is it? What are we told he immediately does? It says that he goes and deceives the nations and gathers this global attack, this global rebellion to go after God and his people. Right? So he can't deceive the nations, and specifically, he can't deceive the nations to mount a global rebellion against the church. And 2 Thessalonians 2 testifies to the fact that Satan cannot do that right now says that he's being restrained from empowering the Antichrist, the man of lawlessness, to mount this type of attack. He can't do it until the restrainer is lifted, until he is unleashed to do so. Until then, he can't do his worst. He can't mount the attack that he would love to do. The implication 
is that because Satan cannot limit the gospel's effectiveness and cannot attack the church globally, we must preach the Great Commission forward, believing that salvation will occur in every area of this world. No matter what camp you fall into, you have to believe that Jesus did something that opened the door for Gentiles in ways that previously it had not been done. The deception decreased when Jesus showed up. The darkness decreased and the light shone forth in corners of this planet that it never had before. It may happen on a greater scale down the road, but it certainly happened when Jesus showed up that the nations came to Jesus in ways they hadn't previously. We also have to believe that Satan cannot mount this rebellion and this global attack until God says that he can. And that's true right now. So the amillennialist would say, Satan is bound because nations are coming to Jesus and Satan cannot mount this attack. He may be bound greater in the future, but it's certainly right and appropriate to say that he's bound in some capacity right now, no matter what camp we fall into. And because of that, the application for us is not just to fill our heads with that knowledge, right? It's to feel encouraged that, man, I can take the gospel to my workplace, to my neighborhood, to the ends of the earth, and know that there's a, there's a good chance of effectiveness when I preach the gospel. My buddy at McDonald's that I've told you about before that always comes and talks to me um, was telling me, he said, man, I've been, I've been sharing the gospel with some guys at work, and, and I was shocked the other day when three of them got saved, and he stopped himself, and he said, Let me, he said I don't know why I'm shocked by that. He said, I, I shouldn't be shocked by that. If I'm sharing the gospel, I should expect people to get saved. But still, in my flawed humanness, God always surprises me, right? Like, it, it should be an encouragement to us that, that Jesus shifted things in such a way where we can be effective with the gospel. Satan can't stop the gospel from going forth. And even when the gospel is hindered in some areas, it can't be hindered globally because Satan can't mount a global attack against the church. Doors may be shut in some countries, but doors open up in others. The gospel can go forth. Number two, embrace the gospel to avoid the second death. Embrace the gospel to avoid the second death. Rejoice over satanic limits. Embrace the gospel to avoid the second death. Revelation 20. Then I saw thrones and seated on them were those to whom the authority to judge was committed. Also, I saw the souls of those who had been beheaded for the testimony of Jesus and for the word of God. And those who had not worshipped the beast or its image and had not received its mark on their foreheads or their hands. They came to life and reigned with Christ for a thousand years. The rest did not come to life till the thousand years were ended. This is the first resurrection. Blessed and holy is the one who shares in the first resurrection. Over such the second death has no power. But they will be priests of God and of Christ and they will reign with him for a thousand years, all right? The amillennialist views this as kind of a combination of when somebody becomes a Christian and then dies as a Christian and comes to life in heaven, that all of that should be considered the first resurrection. Now, that may not be true. There may be a different type of first resurrection to come in the future, but it's very right and appropriate to use resurrection language when talking about salvation and when talking about coming to life after you die as a Christian to be with Jesus while you await a body, okay? Let me show you some passages that use this type of language. Again, it may happen on a greater scale in the future, but it's certainly correct to say this now. Number one, those who accept the gospel resurrect now. They resurrect now. In Ezekiel 36 and 37, and I wish we had time to look at it, we don't. Ezekiel 36, verses 26 through 28, and Ezekiel 37, 10, and verse 14. Both of these chapters have to do with uh, Ezekiel's vision, dry bones coming to life. And part of that is applied to Pentecost in Acts chapter 2. And so the fulfillment of Ezekiel's chapters here happens at Pentecost when the Holy Spirit comes to indwell the disciples there after Jesus has gone to, to heaven. The language that's used in Ezekiel is resurrection language about the Holy Spirit coming and uh, recreating life in these people, right? So the salvation experience, the, the Pentecostal experience for those people that hear the gospel in Acts chapter 2, it's pictured in Ezekiel as them coming to life or being resurrected. John chapter 5 verse 25 is another passage that, that would relate our salvation to resurrection language john chapter 5 verse 25 truly truly i say to you an hour is coming and now is now here when the dead will hear the voice of the son of god and those who hear will live 
right? People will respond to the voice of the Son of God, and by responding to the gospel, it pictures them as coming to life or living. Romans chapter 6, verse 3 through 11, that's the passage we read a lot of times when we talk about baptism, because baptism is a picture of us, what? Dying and being identified with the death of Jesus, coming to life to walk in newness of life, right? That's the picture of the gospel. It's a picture of what happens to us at conversion. We die to our sin with Jesus. We're raised to walk in newness of life. Ephesians chapter 2, verse 4, describes our experience of salvation. But God, being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, he did what? He made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved and raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus, so that in the coming ages he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace and kindness towards us in Christ Jesus. Paul goes even further to say, when you get saved, you're basically reigning with Jesus right now. Like, like you've been seated with Jesus in heaven because you've responded to the gospel. You were dead in your sins. You're alive to Jesus now. You've been resurrected. Colossians 3, 1 through 3 is another passage. We won't take the time to look at that, but 2 Timothy, we will. 2 Timothy chapter 2, verse 11. The saying is trustworthy, for if we have died with him, we will also live with him. If we endure, we will also reign with him. If we deny him, he will also deny us. If we are faithless, he remains faithful, for he cannot deny himself. All right, the picture of salvation being a picture of resurrection. Those who accept the gospel are considered resurrected now. Number two, those who die in Christ are considered resurrected too because they are pictured as living with Jesus now. John chapter 11, verse 25 and 26 is the passage where Jesus talks to uh, Martha about the death of Zacchaeus and talks about people who die living with him. In 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 6, So we are always of good courage. We know that while we are at home in the body, we are away from the Lord, for we walk by faith, not by sight. Yes, we are of good courage. We would rather be away from the body and at home with the Lord. So whether we are at home or away, we make it our aim to please him. All right, so when we're not in our bodies, when we are dead, we are pictured as being with Jesus. Philippians 1, 19 through 24 is that tension that Paul says, to to live is good, to die is better. Do I want to live and be with you and disciple you, or do I want to die and be with Jesus? So he is pictured in death coming to life to be with Jesus. And then in Revelation chapter 2, Obviously, we've already talked about uh, the letters to the churches here, but in Revelation 2.10, do not fear what you are about to suffer. Behold, the devil is about to throw some of you into prison that you may be tested, and for 10 days you will have tribulation. Be faithful unto death, and I will give you the crown of life. There's this encouragement to the martyrs that if they die, they will still live. Verse 26 of chapter 2. The one who conquers and who keeps my works until the end, to him I will give authority over the nations. He will rule them with a rod of iron as when earthen pots are broken in pieces, even as I myself have received authority from my Father. Encouragement to those who are going to die that they will come to life and reign with him. The last one is Revelation 3.21. The one who conquers, I will grant him to sit with me on the throne as I also conquered and sat down with my Father on his throne. Again, that idea that if you die, you will be with me, ruling and reigning with me. All right? So real quick, let me, let me under, help you to understand this. Revelation 20. There's two deaths and two resurrections that are being talked about here, right? First resurrection and second death are explicitly mentioned, which implies a second resurrection and a first death, okay? So everybody picture this with me. The first death is our physical death, and everybody experiences that unless they're here when Jesus comes back. First death is physical for everybody, The second death is a spiritual death, right? Because it's talked about as being a resurrection to this where you're then cast into the lake of fire for eternity. So the second death is not a physical death. It's a spiritual death, okay? That's for unbelievers. The first resurrection then, so if you have a physical death and a spiritual death, then it would make sense we would have a spiritual resurrection and a physical resurrection, That first resurrection is what we're saying may be a spiritual resurrection. That coming to Jesus, that coming to life with him, it it precludes or or is a prerequisite to 
that second resurrection that comes for the believer where he gets a new body. All right? First resurrection, we're told, protects us from the second death. Right? It says, Blessed and holy is the one who shares in the first resurrection. Over such, the second death has no power. There's something unique and special about being resurrected that first time because it protects us from the second death. Protects us from the second death. It keeps us from the consequences of that second death. 1 Corinthians 15.50, I think, prohibits this from being a bodily resurrection mentioned here. 1 Corinthians 15.50. I tell you this, brothers, flesh and blood cannot inherit the kingdom of God, nor does the perishable inherit the imperishable. goes on to talk about when Jesus shows up, death is swallowed up in victory. Right? I mean, he tells, Paul tells us, flesh and blood can't go into the kingdom of heaven. Can't go into God's kingdom, which makes it hard to picture flesh and blood going into a millennial reign with like a, like a uh, um, uh, people living through that first resurrection. Like, like a, a resurrection is something that either el- it eliminates death and you can't have flesh and blood that enjoy the kingdom of God. All right? So that first resurrection is a spiritual resurrection, I think, But even if it's not, it's still true to say, again, whatever camp you're in, salvation is a resurrection. And if you die before Jesus comes back, it's correct to say that you have been resurrected or you have come to life with Jesus in heaven. Okay? The implication then is by repenting and believing today, we no longer fear death. And we enjoy a resurrection now that guards us from the second death. I'll probably post some notes about this section on the city because I I know we had to go through that really fast, and I want to make sure you're kind of clear on the first death, second death, first resurrection, second resurrection. So I'll probably post that this week just so that you can reference back to it. All right, last point, and we'll just give you the notes for this. Hope in the failure of the great deception. Hope in the failure of the great deception. So we have Satan's binding. Nations can't be deceived any longer. First section of Revelation 20. Second section, we have people coming to life, ruling and reigning with Jesus for a thousand years, protects them from the second death. We're saying that that's very likely a spiritual resurrection because Scripture says salvation and dying and coming alive with Jesus, it's appropriate to call that resurrection. Then we see the last half of this section. thousand years are ended. Satan will be released from his prison, will come out to deceive the nations that are at the four corners of the earth. They'll march up against them, but fire came down from heaven and consumes them. The devil who had deceived them was thrown into the lake of fire, Beast and the false prophet are there as well, and they're tormented day and night forever and ever. Number one, Satan will be released to accomplish, will be released to accomplish final plans that he cannot complete now. Shouldn't be past tense there. Satan will be released to accomplish final plans that he cannot complete now. That goes back to what we said in 2 Thessalonians 2. That restrainer will be lifted, and Satan will be able to mount that global rebellion attack against God's people. But just like we see in Revelation 20, where those plans are thwarted by God and they do not come to fruition. Number two, final and eternal victory over Satan and his followers is coming, just like 2 Thessalonians 2 tells us. When the lawless one is revealed, and the Lord Jesus will kill with the breath of his mouth and bring to nothing by the appearance of his coming. This lawless one will deceive a bunch of people, false signs and wonders. But God will win that battle and condemn all those who do not believe the truth but had pleasure in unrighteousness. So again, all the notes today are true no matter what camp you fall into. Satan has been limited today. Even if that's to be done greater in the future, it's been done today as well. Nations are coming to Jesus in ways they haven't previously And Satan cannot mount a global attack. Because of that, we should advance the gospel, be encouraged that the gospel will be effective. We can embrace the gospel today and avoid the second death. That our resurrection is pictured in a spiritual sense when we come to to salvation in Jesus and when we die prematurely before Jesus comes back and we reign with him in heaven right now. Now, we may reign with him on a physical earth in the future. I may be wrong about that, but we are certainly doing that now today when we die. 
Scripture says that. Scripture paints that picture, that resurrection happens at salvation, and it happens when we die and come alive in heaven as we await Jesus to come back and give us new bodies. And number three, we can hope in the failure of the great deception. No matter what camp we fall into, we do believe that that great deception will fail. From an application standpoint, all that has been application. So just to tack on to that, establish a plan for determining what you believe about this chapter and get your questions answered. I'll continue to try to funnel resources your way. I just don't want to see us leave this and you forget it and not know where you stand. I did an intense study 10 years ago or eight years ago, and it's still with me today. Eight years from now, I want you to know what you believe about Revelation 20. Whether you're pre, post, or ah, I don't care. I just want you to know why you believe it. Not because somebody told you, not because you grew up that way, but because you've searched Scripture and you believe it to be true, and you're operating off of that truth. Family worship questions. Read Revelation 20 together and talk about when you believe these events will happen. Share this with your kids. Share this with your family. Then number two, Talk with your kids about why our salvation is sometimes pictured as resurrection. Why is salvation sometimes viewed in that way? Go to some of those passages that we referenced, read those together, talk about salvation being a coming to life to spiritual things. Let's pray, and then Tyson's going to come and close us in one more song. God, we love you, and thank you for the chance to search your scriptures today. I know that it's challenging. I know that there's the possibilities of confusion setting in. Father, I pray that clarity instead would be the result of today. God, that we'd be able to really hang our hat on the things that are true. That when Jesus showed up, Satan was dealt a crushing blow. And that nation upon nation has been coming to you ever since then. Help us to be faithful in our role to communicate the gospel. We thank you that Satan cannot mount his worst plans until you give him permission to do so. Help us to be encouraged by that. Father, we thank you that while we await a bodily resurrection to come in the future, we certainly rejoice today that our salvation has made us new creatures with new desires. And Lord, we look forward to the fact that even if we die because of our faith, we will live with you for eternity. Even if we have to wait for a bodily resurrection, we still get to live with you in the meantime. And God, we thank you for that. We thank you that even as things get worse and rebellion starts to mount, and even as Satan is able to gather nations from every corner to attack your church, that Jesus will show up and win that battle. Help us to be encouraged as we see things deteriorate around us, that ultimately you remain in control. God, give us a desire to know your scripture so that we can pass it on to others. It's in Jesus' name that we pray. Thank you for listening to the Sovereign Hope Church podcast. We trust that you've been encouraged by the word. For more information about our church, please visit our website at www.sovhope.org. Again, that's www.sovhope.org.